167 years before the birth of Christ, Syria had overtaken Israel. And one of the most despicable things that they did was desecrate the Holy Temple. They took the temple over and they put up their own pagan gods inside the temple. And they worshipped their pagan gods there in the Jewish temple. That is, until a Judas man named Judas Maccabeus led an underdog Jewish army to defeat the Syrians. In what has been known as the Maccabean Revolt, Judas and his militia, they drove the Syrians out of the land and they reclaimed the temple. They celebrated this victory with an eight-day feast, which they used to sort of rededicate the temple back to God. Now, according to the Jewish calendar, this all took place. The final victory uh, was consummated on 25 Keshev, which corresponds to the end of December in our calendar. And so this is why Jewish people tend to celebrate a, ho a, a holiday that they call Hanukkah, right around the same time that we call that we celebrate Christmas. Hanukkah is not the Jewish version of Christmas. Uh, Hanukkah is a celebration of the rededication of the temple, which is why it was first known in Jesus' day, Hanukkah was known as the Feast of Dedication. Now, this obviously was not a holiday that was prescribed in Scripture because the events happened long after the canon of the Old Testament was settled. But nonetheless, Jesus seemed to have no problem with it, for he himself participated in this holiday, and he even used it as an opportunity to continue teaching the people of Israel about his role as the Christ, who metaphorically can be thought of as the shepherd over God's sheep. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 10, please? John chapter 10, verse 22, and we will read through verse 30 for our passage today. John 10, 22 through 30. When you are there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, Thus saith the Lord, At that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple and the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. It never ceases to amaze me how many people today continue to claim that the Bible doesn't plainly teach that Jesus is God. People from all different religions will try to make this argument. Atheists like Bart Ehrman will say this. Muslims will say this. Unitarians who don't believe Jesus is God will say this. Many people will argue that the Bible is actually ambiguous about who Jesus claimed to be. And apparently, even in Jesus' own day, his enemies still thought this. They want to know who Jesus is, and they're sick of him not being clear about it. Right? Would you just tell us plainly? 
Just tell us plainly, are you the Christ? He's been ambiguous, apparently. But Jesus disagrees with that assessment, and rightly so. Just because these people have hardened hearts that are unable to understand Jesus does not mean that he has not been clear. Not only has he been clear, but he even reminded them, I've backed up my clear statements with miracles. My father has given me miracles. My claims have been plain. He has not been ambiguous about being the Christ. Not only has he been clear on this on multiple occasions, he even uses this as an opportunity to be clear with them again. In this very passage, he plainly teaches who he is. He even goes so far as not just to tell them plainly who he is, but to go far enough to explain why they don't get it. He tells them who he is and why they don't understand it. And he does so by returning to his shepherd analogy. And so it makes sense why John would maybe take this future event and link it with what we read last week because there's a similar analogy going in here. And what he essentially does in this portion, this passage that we read, is that he teaches he is the Christ by appealing primarily to a doctrine which is known today as the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. Now, what does that mean? I could give you our confessional definition, which defines it like this. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. In layman's terms, it simply means that those who are saved cannot lose their salvation. No one is ever unjustified, so to speak. Now, you've, you've maybe heard of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints under different names. Um, some people call this eternal security. Some call it once saved, always saved. However, our term is to be preferred because it's more specific. Because our term states that it's not just your salvation that's preserved, but your sainthood. It's your faith, specifically, that is preserved. The saint himself, herself, is what is preserved. In other words, we don't believe our salvation can be lost because we don't believe our faith can be lost. And the reason this is an important distinction is because there actually are people out there who say that they believe in once saved, always saved. But what they mean by that is that a person can believe in Jesus and get saved and then they will lose their faith and they no longer believe in Jesus. But their salvation is this permanent thing so they're still going to go to heaven even though they reject Christ. Because once you're saved, you're always saved. We want to distance ourselves from that view. We agree that if a person loses their saving faith, they are no longer saved. You cannot get into heaven if you do not believe in Jesus. And so our view is not just that the salvation is preserved, but primarily the faith which gives you your salvation is what is persevered. And it's important to note that the reason this matters to Christ is because it would take a pretty incredible amount of power to be able to guarantee this for someone. Right? Like, your salvation is not in my hands. It would be pretty blasphemous for me to say so. Jesus is telling these people, your salvation is in my hands. The sheep will be saved because of me. And that's how he plainly asserts his deity and therefore that he is the Christ. He says, I am the Christ because of the perseverance of the saints. Because I'm the one who gets the saints into heaven. Right? Look at verses 27 and 28 with me. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Christ here is very clear that he is not only the one who gives salvation to his sheep, which is a bold enough claim as it is, but that those sheep who receive that salvation will never perish. If a sheep who has received eternal life could forfeit it, then Jesus' statement is simply not true. If there is a sheep out there who can receive eternal life, but then one day they still end up perishing, then it's not true when Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. It's simply not true. Jesus is guaranteeing the end salvation of all of his sheep who receive eternal life from him. And then he basically just says the same thing another way by appealing to a metaphor, saying that metaphorically speaking, he holds all the sheep in his hand and his grip on the sheep is so tight that no one can come and pry his fingers open and take you away. No one can come and lead the sheep away because his grip is too tight. And so when Jesus makes this claim, I argue to you, he is being plain that he is both God and Christ. And I think, that he, I, I think these statements in and of himself are plain enough. But Jesus, I don't know, I guess he's just nicer than me, decides to make it even more plain. Look at how he goes on to explain this in verses 29 and 30, right after. My Father has given them to me, or forgive me, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here Jesus is very quickly switches focus from himself to his Father, and then he doubles down on this teaching of perseverance. The elect are also in the Father's hand, and he's more powerful than all. Right? He's greater than all. He is God, which means he is what we call omnipotent, which is just a fancy term for all-powerful. There is nothing God can't do. And so this is why we believe the very popular teaching that people can lose their salvation. We know it's unintentional. It's not intentional. But we think the logical consequences of this actually do attack the power of God. Because our salvation in this text is being attributed not to our, the power of our faith. It's not attributed to my ability to cling to Christ. It's the other way. It's attributed to God's hold on me. I am in God's hand. I am in Christ's hand. And let me ask you, who is more powerful than God to take you from that hand? Is Satan more powerful than God to come along and pry his fingers open and take you out? Are you more powerful than God to pry the fingers open and leave on your own? Our salvation is being attributed to the omnipotent God. Nothing and no one can take you from that hand. He is God. He is greater than all. And that's why you can't be lost. Now, how does this relate to Jesus' purpose of proving that he's Messiah? How does this relate to him being the Messiah? Well, do you notice how seamlessly he transitioned from me to the Father? Right? I want us to read that again. Look at verses 28 and 29. Speaking of himself in 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Isn't this a contradiction? Right? Whose hand are we in? Are you in Christ's hand? Or are you in the Father's hand? Well, Jesus is clearly saying both. 
And that's why he summarizes this claim in verse 30. This is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. I and the Father are one. Now, this verse is just pregnant with meaning and implications. And so we're going to focus the majority of our time on it next week. But for our purposes today, I think it's sufficient to simply say that what Christ is doing is he is claiming that both his power and his purpose is the exact same as the Father's. And and hear me on this. I'm not saying it's at the same level. The Father has a power and then Christ has an equivalent power. He's saying it's the same power. It's the same will. It's not like Christ, God has a will and then Jesus has his own will and they're they're equivalent. No, the Father's will is mine. The Father's power is mine. I and the Father are one. And so the reason Christ can say that you're in my hand and you're in the Father's hand and when you say which hand am I in, the reason he can say both is because the point he's trying to make here is that there's only one hand. The Father and I share a hand. It's the same hand. We are one. Our nature is one. Our power is one. Our hand is one. Jesus is claiming to have the divine essence. He's claiming to be God. And that is why Christ can say that we are in his hand and we're in the Father's hand and both of those hands are strong enough to never lose us. Because they're both the one hand of the essence of Almighty God. And so this requires Jesus to have this shared divine essence. If he's going to have the same power as God, then he must himself be God. It's a simple, logical, you can think of it as simply as 1 plus 1 equals 2. It's a math equation. Let me ask you this question. Can a finite being possess infinite power? No, that's like a square circle. That, That doesn't make sense. So when Jesus says, I have the same power as God, the same power to save, it belongs to me. And what do you know about God's power? It's infinite. So Jesus is saying, I have infinite power. Can a finite being have infinite power? No. So what is he saying? I'm not a finite being. I'm an infinite being. When you look at the Father, you see me. I am the eternal, almighty God. I have the same power to save as the Father has. We share a hand of salvation. So he is claiming to be the Son of God, which, by the way, just automatically makes him the Christ. You have to understand that. In Jesus, in all of these people's minds, that claim automatically makes you the Christ. Because, I mean, what sense would it make for the Son of God to take on flesh and come to earth and save everybody? And then say, but by the way, there's this human being called the Messiah you're still waiting for who's going to fix everything. It's like, I thought you just fixed everything. And how could the Messiah be our ultimate hope when he's not God and you are? It it wouldn't make sense. When Jesus says, I am the son of God, I am the one that God has given these people to, he's claiming to be the Christ. To be the son of God is to be the Messiah. But but he he still, he's, he's been plain, but he makes it even plainer. Look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus uses messianic language here, right? Who, who specifically does Jesus claim to hold into his hand in verse 29? All those the Father has given him. And so the logic of this passage is that Jesus is essentially saying that he is the Christ because he is the one who was sent by the Father to save the Father's people, which, by the way, is the exact job description of the Messiah. (laughs) 
The Jews didn't know that. The Jews thought the Messiah was going to be a political ruler, a political power who would come and overthrow Rome. But we know with a right understanding of the Old Testament, the job of the Messiah was not to come and overthrow Rome. The job of the Messiah was to come and save the people of God. So Jesus is arguing from his divine power to be able to persevere the elect of God to prove that he is the Messiah. And so if you're thinking, like, I, I, I'm the kind of person, I like a main takeaway. You've said a lot of words. You've read a long passage. Just give it to me straight. Be plain like Jesus, right? What is this passage about? I think it's this. Jesus claims to be the Christ by teaching that he has a divine power to save and persevere the elect of God. Jesus claims in this passage plainly to be the Christ by teaching that he has a divine power to save and persevere the elect of God. That's what I say this passage is about. Unfortunately, most Christians around the world today would disagree with me that that's what this passage is about because they disagree with me that God's elect will actually persevere. As much as I lament, I lament saying this, the perseverance of the saints is not a popular belief in fact, around the world, it's actually the minority report among Christians. Uh, today, we are grateful. Many classical Arminians do affirm this teaching, but it unfortunately is largely seen, for the most part, as unique to Reformed theology. It is just Calvinists, quote-unquote, who believe that people can't lose their salvation. And so I want to spend the rest of our time just sort of giving a brief defense of my position, my theology, and my take on this passage. And I want to just bring up the three most common arguments that people have against the perseverance of the saints. The first one, before we go back into the Bible, I just want to deal with the historical argument. The first argument that I often hear is that no one in church history believed in the perseverance of the saints. This is a novel. It's a new doctrine. It didn't show up until the Reformation. So why on earth should I believe that Jesus is plainly teaching something here when millions of Christians have been reading this passage for th over a thousand years and you guys are the first ones to see it? Right? It makes some sense. Why would we believe something that nobody in church history has believed? Now, I, my response to this is that this is a half-truth. I don't actually believe that this is really fully true. And I believe that the little bit of truth that's in it is being used to mislead and confuse people. First, let me just get this out of the way. When people talk about what the early church believed, we really don't have a lot of writings from the first from the first, second, and third centuries of the church, the ones that really matter. Um, and the ones that we do are very focused on these kind of like very gospel-oriented who is Christ. A lot of these peripheral doctrines, we don't have a lot of writing. So it's, it's very difficult to say what Christians believed for the first 300 years of the church. But with that aside, I want to go more to the point. I think that our, what I just taught here is not nearly as absent from church history as people say it is. And here's what I mean. The gist of what I've taught today is that God has an elect people who will be saved and they cannot fall away. That's the gist of perseverance of the saints. And that core, if you stick to just that core, is incredibly ancient. It's incredibly ancient. One of the first person to teach this, though I think we can prove it even before him, but the first person to clearly teach this is a man you've probably heard of him named Augustine. Kind of a big deal. Augustine believed this, and Augustine has followers in every age. You will find people throughout the entire history of the church who are referred to as Augustinians. For example, Martin Luther, before his conversion, was an Augustinian monk, people who followed the teachings of Augustine. Augustine taught this. 
And Augustine is considered, other than Christ and the apostles, he is considered to be the most influential person, at least over Western Christianity, in all of world history. So basically, our view is held by the most important theologian outside of the Bible. And then someone else came along many, many, many years after Augustine who had probably the second biggest influence on church doctrine, a man named Thomas Aquinas, who followed Augustine in this view. And Thomas Aquinas even taught that there is an elect of God that will be saved and they cannot lose their salvation. So the two, potentially, arguably, the two most influential theologians of the entire history of the church, one of them very early, have taught this and have had disciples. So our view is really not novel at all. It's very ancient. Now, here's why people say it's novel. Because there's sort of a side attachment that we add on to this view that is novel. Or at least it's novel in the sense that not a lot of theologians in church history have held to it. There is a, a spin on the view that we have that Augustine and Aquinas didn't. Because what, August, what we teach is not just that God's elect will be saved and will persevere, but that only God's elect will be saved and will persevere. Augustine and Aquinas agreed with us that God has an elect people and they cannot lose their salvation. Impossible, it won't happen. But they saw these other passages about apostasy and they had a view of baptism that saved people. And so what do we do with all these people walking away from Christianity? So the way they harmonized it by saying, while God has an elect and that elect are guaranteed they will be saved and they will not fall away, other people who are not part of this elect group, they can still get saved and they can lose their salvation. So here's where the misleading part comes in. People will come in and say, Augustine didn't believe in the perseverance of the saints. He clearly taught people could lose their salvation. And that's true, but do you see how it's a little misleading? Because he also taught that the elect couldn't. Augustine agreed with us, the elect of God cannot fall away. But there are non-elect people who can get saved, and those people, they can lose their salvation. It's that little amendment that is popular in church history that we deny. We deny that. We say the non-elect can never get saved in the first place. And as much as I hate to disagree with Augustine, and as much as I hate to disagree with the history of the church, I think we have really good reasons for saying that, just from our passage alone. Right? Look at verses 25 through 27 with me. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Okay, so let's go back. Jesus said, I've been very clear about who I am. I'm the Messiah. Why don't they believe that? If he's been so clear, why don't they believe it? And Jesus' answer is because it is only the elect that can come and believe and understand. That's what he says. You do not believe, verse 26, because you are not among my sheep. This is where we argue Augustine and Aquinas go wrong. They think you don't have to be a sheep of Christ to hear and believe. The non-elect can hear and the non-elect can believe and they might fall away. But Jesus is clearly saying, the cause of your disbelief is your non-election. If you're not a sheep, you can't understand and you can't enjoy Christ. It is only the sheep that hear his voice and follow him. And this doctrine, by the way, I argue, is just a general reason why you should be a Reformed Christian. I really do believe Jesus is sort of vindicating the Reformed view of predestination status. Remember, everybody believes in predestination. It's a biblical word. It's in the Bible three or four times. Everybody believes in predestination. 
The debate is over how do we understand that term? What does it mean? And if you're not reformed, then there's there's nuances, but there's basically only one way to understand predestination. And that is that God predestined people, he elected people on the basis of something he saw them do, namely faith. This is why we don't call in reform world, we don't call our new election, we call it unconditional election. And it is we're responding to the opposite view of election, which is that it's conditional. If you believe, there's the condition, then God elected you. So, so hear me on this. In, in the non-reformed way of saying things, your faith comes first and your election comes second. God saw your faith, there's step number one, therefore he elected you, there's step number two. Faith first, election second. And so they also believe in that what we call reformation, which is just a fancy word for not being elect, is conditional based upon your non-belief. God knew you would not believe. There's your disbelief one. So what does he do? He doesn't elect you. There's your reprobation too. So in the non-reformed way of thinking, faith comes first, and then a consequence of faith is election. Disbelief comes first, and then a consequence of disbelief comes reprobation. But Jesus here puts it the exact other way around. Jesus does not say, you do not believe in me, therefore you're not one of my sheep. He says, you're not one of my sheep, and that's why you disbelieve. For Jesus, the sheep comes before the faith. The election comes before the faith. Your faith is a consequence of your election. Your election is not a consequence of your faith. God elected you unto belief, not because of belief. And that is the reformed view of election. That it is the sheep that hear the voice. It is the elect that hear the voice. And the elect respond in faith. And Jesus is very clear. If you're not elect, if you're not among my sheep, you won't hear. That's why we don't believe non-elect people get saved. The election comes first, but faith falls as a consequence. And so, so much, I've got a little bit of a rabbit trail. So much for the historical argument. Let's get into the biblical arguments. Another reason why people don't believe in perseverance of the saints is quite simply because the Bible teaches apostasy. The Bible teaches apostasy. Now, what does apostasy mean? Apostasy is just a word we get from a Greek word, which in the Greek, it simply means to fall off or to fall away. So when we talk about apostates or apostasy, we're talking about people who used to be Christians and now they no longer are. They used to believe in Jesus and now they no longer do. They used to profess our religion and now they profess something else. And the Bible is full of apostates and it's full of teachings of apostasy, of falling away from Christ, being severed from Christ. People abandoning, making shipwreck of their faith, leaving the faith. And, and unfortunately, I don't think I even need to just go to the Bible. I'm sure everyone in this room has enough personal examples from their own life of apostates. People who used to be Christians, and now they no longer are. So how could we possibly believe in the perseverance of the saints when we know that there is people who are Christians and then they stop being Christians? We know there are people who fall away. Now, as you can imagine, time does not allow us to look at every single apostasy passage today and talk about it. I already wasted a bunch of time on that. So I have to just give you sort of a general approach for today to apostasy. In general, we do not deny apostasy, but we understand it differently. Namely, our position is that we believe that the people who abandoned Christ and Christianity were never truly in possession of saving faith or salvation. And you might say, well, that sounds awfully convenient. Well, let me just give you at least one controlling passage that leads us to think this. 
In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John says, The same author of our gospel, by the way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So already we have John in this category. They looked like they were a part of us, and then they left us, so that means they what? They actually weren't. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. So notice John, again, the author of our book, he sees perseverance as a necessary fruit of saving faith. He sees it as so necessary that if a person leaves, John says that proves they never had it. They were never actually of us. Those who fall away would have remained if their faith was genuine. So their apostasy proves they were never true disciples. He even compares them in verse 20 to true disciples. But, juxtaposition, they were this, but instead, you have the holy anointing. You have all knowledge. The implication is that those left us never had that true anointing. Never had the fullness of knowledge. Another category to help you understand why we say what we do about apostasy is one that has come up in the Gospel of John over and over and over again, which is this idea that we think the Bible teaches that there are different kinds of faith. Christianity is not just a matter of faith or no faith. There are different kinds of faith, and many of them do not save. The first and the clearest time that this came up, again, I've been arguing this throughout the entire Gospel, but the clearest time it came up was in John chapter 2, where John says this, now, when he, speaking of Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So they believed. It doesn't say they pretended to believe. It doesn't say they thought they believed. They actually did. They believed. They saw the miracles and they put their faith in Jesus. What does Jesus do? Save them? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew it was in man. These people saw Jesus' miracles and they believed, and yet Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that whatever faith they have just put in me is not the kind of faith I'm looking for. So I'm not going to trust myself to that. So here are people who believe in Jesus, but they're not saved. They don't have union with Christ. The implication is that while their faith was real, it wasn't saving faith. It wasn't the kind of faith that Jesus desires. So we affirm that people can genuinely believe in Jesus and then, as Paul says, make shipwreck of that faith. People can believe in Jesus and lose that belief. But there is a certain kind of faith, a saving faith, that John says, if you possess it, you will continue. You cannot deny that. The last idea that I want us to look at, the third argument, is that people, when they point to like a text like this, and they'll say this, they'll say, listen, all the text says is that no one can come and pluck us out of God's name. It doesn't say anything about whether we can choose to leave. So everyone agrees, like, Satan can't force me to lose my salvation against my will, but I can forfeit it as much as I will. And here's my question to you. Is that really all the text says? Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Nothing about a hand here. It's just a promise, just a guarantee that once you get eternal life, you won't ever perish. The text is, is, is pretty clear about it. This has nothing to do with the hand. He's made a promise that his sheep who receive eternal life from him won't perish. 
But I would argue that this analogy doesn't even make sense in the next part. Where Jesus goes on to say, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. First, if Christ is securing our salvation to his grip, which is what I believe he's doing in this text, then it doesn't matter whether the resistance is external or internal. It doesn't matter where the resistance is coming from. The question is, can it overcome the hand? And, and I would argue that Jesus' point is neither external nor internal resistance. Whether you're pushing his fingers from the inside or pulling from the outside, the point is the hand can't be open. Like, let, me use, let me use an analogy. Suppose that you went out of town, and I try to be a good pastor. I volunteer to, to, to walk your dogs every day while you're alone. And I made you a promise. I said, when you return, every single one of the dogs that you gave to me, none of them will be lost. I will hold their leash in my hand so tightly, nothing will pluck them out of my hand, and they shall not perish. You say, oh, I will dramatically thank you. You come back to an empty house, your dogs are gone. And you call me. You say, what happened to my dogs? I say, oh, I took a walk and ran away. You say, so you broke your promise. You promised they wouldn't perish. You promised that you would hold them so tight that nothing would pluck them away. And I said, whoa, 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 calm down. I kept my promise. Nothing plucked them away. They were the ones who wanted to be. I held them with a loose grip. No one plucked them away. Your dog saw a squirrel and he wanted to leave. No one plucked them out of my hand, but he left on his own. Is that a good defense? I say no. And I say it wouldn't be a good defense for Jesus. If Jesus shows up on judgment day, and all whom the Father has given him, most of them are missing. And the Father says, Jesus, I gave you a people, and most of them are gone. You promised they would never perish. You promised no one would pluck them out of your hand. And Jesus says, no one took them from me, but they want to know me. I would say that's not an acceptable excuse for the Messiah. The Messiah is telling his Father, you gave me these people, I will bring them to you. Jesus is making a promise based on his power which overcomes external and internal resistance. He's making a promise to hang on and not lose the sheep of God. And let me also say that I just think this idea of, well, external temptation can't pull them out, they can choose to leave. I just think in real life that separates apostasy, internal apostasy, from the external causes way too much. These things are far more linked than this argument gives credit. Right? The fact remains that when someone sort of metaphorically uh, attempts to take a believer from the hand of Christ. In real life, what are they doing? They're, they're applying an external temptation to influence that person's will. In other words, apostasy is always someone choosing to leave. That's always what it is. There might be an external thing that helped prompt that, but, but no one is suggesting that it was even on the minds of the Jewish people that Satan could drag me out of the hands of God even though I still believe in him. No, the point is, is that external persecution comes in and it influences our will. And Jesus is saying, no, it won't. Right? I, I, I might not make sense. Let me try to use, so here's what Paul says rhetorically. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The, the rhetorical question is no. The sword cannot separate you from Christ's love. Now, what's he trying to deny you? What's the argument he's rejecting? Is the argument that 
someone could walk in this building with a sword and stick it in your heart and physically suck your physical salvation up? No, the argument is that someone comes in with a sword, threatens your life, and then you choose to abandon Christ. And Paul is saying that can't happen. You see the way the external causes are tied to the internal. There's no such thing as a purely external apostasy. It's always internal. The person always has to make the choice, I'm gone. So we can't separate external. In other words, when Jesus says, no one will pluck them out of my hands, he's taking into account your will. Because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to influence you to leave. My favorite theologian, Francis Jerton, he put it this way. The sheep which cannot be plucked out of the hands of Christ by the temptations of any enemies cannot cease to be sheep, because no such change could be made except these some attempts of enemies. Now, what you're saying is, which Christian just wakes up one day just randomly out of the blue and goes, I don't want to be a Christian anymore? It doesn't happen. They leave for reasons. They want to commit adultery. They want to participate in this sin. Heavy persecution. They're going to go to prison. They're going to lose their job. There's arguments they can't handle. Apostasy is always both external and internal. You can't separate them and say, Christ is really only talking about the external, not the internal. They're linked. No one just unbecomes a sheep. There's always an external influence. And Christ says that external influence can't work. Not on a sheep. And, and here's the thing I know I'm getting a little fired up. Shouldn't that be comforting? Does this doctrine not really provide for us the most sure grounding of our assurance? So I, I don't want to end this all fired up doing apologetics. I, I want to end this by simply saying, take heart, saints. Jesus is God and he is Christ. And this means that your shepherd has the power to save. He has the power to save and to keep you through the troubles of this life so that when you fear their faithful faith, Christ will hold you fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold you fast. You could never keep your hold, not through life's fearful path, because your love is often cold. So he must hold you fast. And he will hold you fast. Because your Savior loves you so, he will hold you fast.